Please remain standing for the rest of the sermon. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> well, I want you to imagine this morning um, a very different world, a world with no snowfall, a world where the smallest step that you take could send you on an endless trajectory into an abyss. Yikes. Streams don't flow like they normally do. Fire's not contained as you normally think it would be. Oxygen can't survive. It's a world without gravity. A world without gravity. My wife and I, Allie and I, uh, had the opportunity not too long ago to see the movie Gravity. And what's so brilliant about this movie is though, although it's, you know, there's a lot of debate whether how scientifically accurate some of their portrayals were in their shooting, it does give us a good life of the precarious life without gravity, with zero gravity floating around. And, and gravity, it's something we all believe in, Right? It's something we almost take for granted. It's a part of our everyday decision-making. It's commonplace. And yet, it's so important. Our belief in the law of ra- gravity, it radically changes the way we live our lives. For example, most of us here aren't trying to jump across large ravines. Rather, what do we do as a human society? We build bridges, right? We even invent these things called mattresses to help us at night defeat and compete against the pull of gravity to make our bodies a little more comfortable. We look up at the ceiling and the very construction of the roof was designed so that the ceiling does not fall down on us, that we can guard the snow from coming down upon us and guard us that way. Gravity, it's it's really easy to prove. It's easy to show how gravity shapes our environment. You know, it's tangible. It's visual, right? Whoa, how did that happen? Gravity, you know? Oh, I just taught you a lot, right? Um, It doesn't necessarily surprise us. And yet what is surprising that just like gravity, without faith, we cannot make it in this world. It too shapes the very contours of our days. Faith impacts our plans. It impacts our relationships and how we seek to cultivate those very relationships. But is it easy to show faith? like we can show gravity? Is it testable? Is it observable? Is it repeatable? Is it measurable? Can I prove that I'm a follower of Jesus? And uh, for some of us, we might push back and say, ha, I don't need to prove I believe, Gabe. I don't need to prove. I've prayed a prayer. I don't need to prove. I've got good theology. Who are you to judge? I had a friend of mine in college. Um, He had this annoying habit. Whenever I would get into a conversation, we lived on the same hall in college, and he would come in uh, when I was talking to someone about something. So for example, I was talking, I remember one conversation talking to someone about jumping onto a plane to go to Jerusalem for one summer. And he, he jumps into the conversation and says, prove it! And, you know, and then you start, you try to go on with the conversation, but he keeps badgering, prove it! Prove it! So then you have to get out your phone, find a picture of when I boarded the plane to go to Jerusalem. And by that point, the story is lost, right? There's no point of even continuing the conversation. But he had this desire of always having people prove what everybody assumed to be true. And in our text this morning, we find a church who says they have faith, who says and has the assumption that they're followers of Jesus. But the author, he calls them out to prove it. The author of this letter is none other than the half-brother of Jesus, James the Just, as he's known later on in history. And in Mark 6, we come across kind of a cameo of James. When Jesus begins teaching in his hometown, the townies, 
are not having anything of it. They're like, who is this guy? We know. In Mark 6, verse 3, it says, They asked, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? James had a different vantage point on the life of Jesus, probably than the rest of us. He was waiting for his half-brother Jesus to prove it. For me, one of the greatest apologetics, actually, for the gospel is that James believes the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and becomes one of his followers. I mean, James grew up doing chores with Jesus. But he doesn't just become a follower. We find in Acts 15, he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he becomes so zealous for the church that he actually writes this letter. He's passionate about the person of Christ, the cause of Christ, and the church of Christ. And so he writes James, or writes this letter that takes his name to a congregation that's wrestling. And they're wrestling through a toxic faith. We see early on in chapters 1 and 2, to give us a context here, that their faith has begun to bring a divided community. A faith void of any real life impact. As was common in the world around them, they mistreated the poor, saw people mainly by dollar signs, and the rich were seen as an opportunity. You cared for your managers with the hopes that you're paying it forward, right? So that they pay you back later. Their belief in Jesus, it had no bearings in their behavior with one another in their community. So James asks a question. He asks a question that every one of us in here needs to hear. A question that every one of us needs to wrestle through. A question our text centers on. A question that's divided the church more because of confusion rather than disagreement. The question, can faith live without works? Can faith really live Without works. Or in other words, can belief and behavior be separated into nice and neat compartments in the Christian life? His answer, right here at the very beginning of our passage, with all the immutable voice of Scripture resounding behind him, is a loud no. (laughs) No. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Well, unlike the English language, uh, the original Greek here has a way of directing you to the answer that it's wanting you to get. Um, we aren't left guessing what James is thinking when we go to the Greek. James want us, wants us to know that this kind of faith cannot save anyone. Actually, his first answer to this question, can faith live without works, is that faith without works is kind of ridiculous. It's kind of ridiculous. Like a master artist, he paints these exhibits to portray what he's trying to teach us through the Word of God, which unfortunately was happening right here in this faith community in James. They're ignoring a destitute brother in Christ. They're in the community together. They're gathering together regularly, singing the same songs, learning from the various letters, talking about the stories of Jesus, reviewing the Old Testament And yet they're ignoring the brother or sister in Christ who's right next to them on a weekly basis and the needs that are going on in their lives. They're having these grand feasts and those who are poor do not get to join in on those feasts. Look at verse 15. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace. There's this peace candle. This is Advent, right? Go in peace, be warm and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Words without works in this situation don't do anything. Actually, it does more harm than good here. It's kind of an insult, right? You go and you go up to someone who's in need and you say, go and go warm and be filled. You know, this is great. We see each other weekly. I know you got stuff going on. I know you got great needs, but go get them. How insulting is that, right? We as a culture specifically in the United States, we can get behind this story and say this is insulting, right? Well, friends, profession without practice is destructive. And it's been killing the church ever since Jesus ascended. One who dealt with this problem was the Christian philosopher Kierkegaard uh, in the 19th century. And in normal Kierkegaardian fashion, he addresses it with this arsenal of literary irony. In one memorable instance, he tells a parable about Duckland. Not Duck Dynasty, mind you, but Duckland. Uh, It was Sunday morning, he writes. And all the ducks dutifully came to church, waddling through the doors and down the aisle into their pews where they comfortably squatted. When all were well settled and the hymns were sung, the duck minister waddled to his pulpit. I guess that'd be me. Opened the duck Bible and read, Ducks, you have wings. And with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar into the sky. Use your wings. It was marvelous and elevating duck scripture. And thus all the ducks quacked with their ascent with a hearty amen. And then they plopped down from their pews and waddled home. I mean, do you see how ridiculous this is? The yawning chasm between profession and action is obscene here in this little story. To believe is to live a changed life. You cannot stay the same. In the Gospel of John, Jesus was talking to a few skeptics and he says... If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you believe the truth of Jesus Christ? Then you will be free. Do your works prove your faith? If they don't, James says your so-called faith is just plain ridiculous. Just as ridiculous as ignoring a destitute brother in need who is gathering with you on a weekly basis and proclaims the same Savior and Lord. Now, some of us may say, I, but I believe. I know good theology. Isn't that good enough? I thought, I thought I didn't need to have a lifestyle change. Isn't this a bait and switch? Well, James knows our questions. And look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is useless, we find here. And works without faith are worthless, actually. It's not emphasizing one or the other, but seeing how they're inseparable, they're interlocking. But what a belief. He's not done. He's not done. He talks about a belief that is not true faith. And at James's second exhibit, we find demons shuddering. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, yikes, that faith apart from works is useless? This is, he gets pretty intense here in his language. But you see, there isn't a demon in the world that's an atheist. 
James is talking about here. Rather, all demons are probably monotheists, mentally assenting to the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They know the Apostles' Creed. They can probably recite Scripture and probably know theology better than many of us in here. But it does them no good. No good. The demons believe and they still shudder, the text says. Literally, they bristle up like a frightened cat. That's kind of the image we have here, utter, utter fear. And the hard truth for us to grasp is that hell will have its fair share of people who are orthodox, monotheists, trinitarian, and completely lost. Why? Because there's a huge gap between believing about something and believing in something. Believing about something involves the mental assent that it's historically accurate. For example, I believe that 2 p.m. on Thursday, my bank will get deposited into U.S. Bank. That's a historically accurate reality. But believing in something means that you also place functional trust, weight in that statement, so much so that it impacts your decisions. Therefore, knowing that that check has been deposited, I know about it, I'm going to trust in it, such that I'm going to begin to write checks. Who writes checks anymore? I'm going to write a check to pay my bills out of the money I know has been deposited. Belief about is historical accuracy. Belief in causes action. It changes the way we respond in the world. For most of us, though, we've been taught to define faith by merely mental assent to historical activities which is a critical part to faith as we see in Scripture, to be sure. I mean, as we see in Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? There's content to be learned and to be proclaimed historical, reliable content that Jesus Christ lived in history, died on a physical cross to take all our sin upon himself and rose again three literal days later to give us a hope of resurrection life now and forever. We hold fast to the Apostles' Creed. We hold fast that the triune God's work throughout history as revealed in Scripture is reliable and trustworthy. But that's not the whole of belief. A friend of mine once said, the hard thing for Christians in the United States today, although there are many things that we wrestle through, one of the biggest is we just don't understand English language anymore. And this is one exact instance. Me, myself, I wrestle through this, or I, myself. Um, the very word, all right, I make a grammatical error, right, when we're talking about the English language. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, the very word, <laughs> the very word belief which we use in our English translation that we have here of the Greek text, comes from an old English idea of by life. By life. What you mentally affirmed was shown by your life that you truly believed it. It wasn't just saying yes or checking a box on a piece of paper. But if you believed it was true, it changed the way you lived your life. Hence, belief. By life. Real belief, true faith, is mental assent and total reliance in action. What of our cry of sola fide, right? Salvation by faith alone. This is not in contradiction, for salvation by faith alone is never found 
alone. When Jesus is sending his disciples out after his resurrection, right before he ascends, you know, this is a famous moment. What does he say? Go therefore and make people who mentally assent that I have existed. No, right? What does he say? Go therefore and make disciples. This is a following, a learning, a putting on the yoke of Christ language of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. In other words, do all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, Dallas Willard has called this many times. Amongst this great commission, there is what has become many times in the 20th and 21st century church, the great omission. (laughs) The great omission that Christ, while he is sending his apostles, is not only calling his church to converts, but to disciples who are obeying all that he has commanded them to do. You know, theologian A.W. Tozer writes, salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. What? Really? Yes. Some of us in here are what Dallas Willard would call vampire Christians. And that's not cool. You're not like a part of the Twilight series or anything. Um, Rather, a vampire Christian says in effect to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please. But I don't want to be your student or have any of your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. I mean, does anyone in here actually think this is acceptable to Jesus? Is this what he's longing for us for our own good? Really, if you stop and think about it, how could we actually trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins while not trusting in him for much more the rest of our lives here and now and for eternity? You can't really trust him without believing that he's right about everything else as he's revealed himself in scripture. And yet we do it all the time, don't we? When we're frustrated with his timetable, we go about manipulating others to encourage a faster movement of our agenda. When we long to have what we want now, this is what we find many times, the language of immorality is sex outside of God's bounds, waiting on his timetable and his relationship for flourishing, and so on and so on with the rest of the list of brokenness and sins we see in Scripture. You see, real faith is more than just mere intellectual affirmation. Real faith works. If it doesn't, it's useless. Do you have real saving faith? Then prove it. But we can't stop there. Not only is faith without works ridiculous and useless, but it's just straight up incomplete. This isn't a new idea in Scripture. This is the central theme of the Jewish community in the Old Testament, the Shema, right? Always interlocking faith or belief and behavior, faith and work, It was nonsensical to separate the two. And a distortion that's floated around in the church for decades is the idea that Jesus can be your Savior and not be your Lord. Meaning we can tell Jesus what we want from him and tell him to keep the rest. Jesus, please forgive me for all the wrongs I've done. Now just leave me alone. Thank you. That's not what we find in Scripture, ever. No, Jesus can either be your Savior and your Lord or he will be your judge. And he does so in the most gracious way and loving way possible for our good. It should be sobering. There's no other option. He's incompletely himself if he is just one or the other. It'd be like someone saying in marriage, honey, 
I want to marry you for your body. But don't give me any of this intimacy, intimacy stuff. Come on, we know that's not going to work out, right? It's not healthy. It's very destructive. We'd almost not even call that a marriage. You see, neither Abraham or Rahab, they, they didn't just claim faith, but they committed to it. So when we ask, what does this look like? James gives us these two polar examples, polar opposites of this Old Testament faith. He presents the, the top Jewish patriarch, Abraham, and a fortunate prostitute, Rahab, and what they had in common. The writer of the book of Hebrews summarizes Abraham's life of faith in chapter 11 in so short verses when you look at the span it covers in Genesis. But he does such an amazing job showing that each step was a step of faith, but it required outward action, or at least proved itself, it would be better language, an outward action. He began his journey in faith. God called him to a foreign land. He went. He sojourned for decades in a foreign land because God had called him there. And then... When God had asked him to do the unthinkable, he did it. He followed God's command. After all of God's promises of an offspring from his wife's barren womb, taking decades to come to fruition in his son Isaac. In Hebrews 11, chapter 17, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And so he acted. To which we pick up in James, our passage, chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see, faith looks at works and says, you complete me. But not kind of like Jerry Maguire, weird-esque. But works are the culmination, culmination, the goal, the outcome of faith in God's person and in his promises. It proves faith to be genuine. But if people feel like the interconnection of faith and works or for the spiritually elite, James goes, we're not going to just look at the patriarch, the patriarch, Abraham. Let's look at Rahab. No one had a leg up on Rahab. <laughs> or I guess we all did. She didn't have a leg up on anybody else. That'd probably be the better way of saying it. The memorable prostitute of Jericho, through audacious faith, hides the spies from the governing authorities. The only basis of faith she had to go on were the merchants who would come through her inn, and tell her rumors of what Yahweh, what God had done throughout the Exodus and throughout the neighboring countries. It was from these stories she risked her life and the life of her family, no less, to hide these spies, these two spies, at the very beginning of, the, of Israel's conquest of the land in the Old Testament. She hides them because she believes God will deliver her. She knows he is the God of all gods. And she, she banks on him delivering her. Her action of hiding the spies, it showed she had faith. There's no question when you look at Rahab that she is trusting God. Which is why James writes in chapter 2, verse 25 in our passage, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Just if you were wondering the answer to this question, 
in the Greek is yes. Um, she was. And the most shocking phrase in James, his whole letter, has to do with how he uses this word justify, right? This word justify. And in the middle of these two examples of Abraham and Rahab, we find verse 24, an audacious statement. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What? Has he ever read the Apostle Paul? You know, we were just in Romans 3 not too long ago, 328. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is why I don't like scripture. It's contradictory, you know. No, it's not. It's not. Not quite. Remember how he said that each letter is written to a particular congregation wrestling through a particular issue? Remember, this is a timeless document and that it speaks to us here in the 21st century, but it's also a timely document and that it was written to a specific congregation wrestling through specific issues. For Paul, in his letters, he's combating against the heresy of legalistic faith where it's all based on works. It's all about doing the right thing so that God has to forgive you. It's manipulating God's hand to force him to give you grace. This is the language of legalism. Whereas James is fighting against a different heresy. It's the pendulum swing. It's a superficial faith. It's all about just knowing the right ideas that don't change anything about your life. Both are toxic. Both are life-taking rather than life-giving. Faith that truly believes in the finished work of Christ on the cross works, works, and works. Interestingly enough, the reformer Martin Luther, right, who waxed eloquently about justification by faith alone, which we hold to, who called the book of James a strawy epistle. You know, he wrestled through this book himself. In his opening remarks to the commentary that he writes on the book of Romans, He confirms this dynamic interconnection of faith and works where he writes, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask where there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. You cannot stay the same if you really believe. Do you see how incomplete faith is without works? Well, if you thought ridiculous, useless, and incomplete were harsh, this last one's a doozy. Um, Look again at verses 17 and verse 26 together. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead... So also faith apart from works is dead. Repetition and that short of a chunk should be red flags for us. We should be stopping and going, okay, James is trying to make a point here. And he gives us this final exhibit, an exhibit of a lifeless corpse as the metaphor of faith without works. This right here is fatal belief, friends. You can't imagine the body living without the spirit. So don't think your faith is living if you don't have works. Ideas, when truly believed, become actions lived in. Otherwise, belief without behavior, even if it's embalmed in this beautiful creedal statement, is nothing but a decaying corpse. That's what we see here. You can't stay the same. 
Do you believe in Jesus Christ's life, his death, his resurrection? Do you believe that you are a sinner in need of salvation, doomed to an eternal hell, apart from the grace of God, such that he sent his son Jesus Christ to live the life we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die, and raise again to invite us into resurrection life when we call him Savior and Lord? Then prove it. Do you believe that? Understanding what the word belief is in English and what we see here in Greek and in James and throughout the rest of Scripture. But even here, it's not so easy, is it? We are such a guilt-ridden people and we need to preach the gospel of grace to ourselves daily. Otherwise, we live out of guilt rather than gratitude, right? But we need to ask ourselves the question. This is life and death. This isn't something we can just shrug off and deal with later. But we need to prayerfully ask ourselves and also ask the Holy Spirit to probe our own hearts in answering the question, is my faith dead or alive? And can you prove it? James, earlier in his letter, he's given us a glimpse of working faith, living faith that works itself out. And he calls us to life when he first says, don't just hear the word, but do it. Don't just hear the word and so deceive yourselves, but do it. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. This is exactly what he says. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You're never going to find the life of Christ just by sitting and listening and never responding and believing in it such that it changes your life. Remember, true belief, biblical faith, requires not only mental assent about it, about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but relying in Him, which presupposes you're reading Scripture, you're praying for God to actually speak to you, and longing to obey. Anything less is dead faith. And we're just fooling ourselves if we think otherwise. James calls us foolish. Now, if you're anything like me, you instantly jump to going and looking for a checklist. (laughs) What do I do? What do I not do, right? And that's legalism. We kind of go back to the other pendulum swing. This is a tough tension that we walk with in the Christian life. This isn't a trip to the grocery. This is a marriage. This is a relationship. Nobody ever asks, do I love my spouse enough, right? I took out the garbage, I walked the dog, I gave her 2.5 hugs today. I'm good, now I can go do my own thing, right? No, in a marriage you're constantly seeking to outdo one another in love. You're seeking, we don't always do this well, but we're seeking to show and express your love and care through tangible ways. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14 verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you hear this promise? When we express our belief and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, the presence of God is with us. Don't just hear his word. Trust it, and so do it. This is real faith. So prove it. But we can't stop there either. Don't just do it. We find in James that we do it for others. In James 1, we hear one of the most well-known passages on compassion. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A gospel-shaped vision of service is always seeking avenues to care for the most vulnerable in our community. When we think about limited capacity for us as individuals, be asking yourself in your own vocation where God strategically placed you to be seeking the good of our city and to glorify his good name for the majority of your life, how are you doing that in your work, in your very place that you're spending nine to five or, you know, six to six, depending on your job? But we also see, we need to be asking the question, how are we using our capacity to show compassion to the least of these in our city through tangible volunteer roles as well? The orphan, the widow, the homeless, the forgotten and abandoned, we see right here in our passage from the voice of God in Scripture to be caring for those who are the least of these is pure and undefiled religion. During the holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, this is common to talk about, yes? And many of our partners, the Kansas City Rescue Mission, you know, uh, Restart, and plenty of other organizations in our downtown nonprofits, they're swamped, quite frankly, because this is the season of service. It's Thanksgiving. I feel guilty that I get a great meal and other people don't, so I'm going to serve. This is kind of the culture we live in. But when you get to January, our nonprofits are starving many times because everybody's done the Christmas deal. How can you organize your schedule, pursue margin? How is God calling you to do this? To seek the least of these in our city by connecting with Kansas City Rescue Mission, City Union Mission, Restart, that you might express to others what God in Christ has already done for you through tangible ways. Yes, proclamation of the gospel, but also demonstration of the gospel. But even here, we can't stop. Don't just do for others. Do it for yourself. Do it for yourself. If we believe God, when he says that the wages of sin is death, the promises of the world are empty, then living faith works the rest of that verse, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We live out the word of God in a broken world. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors and in our community because we believe there's no other life than in Christ. We hear the words of Jesus in a world of overwork, legalism, or the other extreme, easy believism. And they're beautifully sung in the Messiah, which I heard last night. As he calls us to in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Then do we just sit there? No. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you really believe that for yourself? What Jesus is calling us to. Calling us to himself. If so, then we will find that a faith that works actually brings rest rather than restlessness. This is why this is good news and not a burden. So in the midst of the Christmas season, I want us to imagine if Mary and Joseph had heard the news that Mary was with child and then they just did nothing. They just went with life as usual. I mean, it would have gotten pretty awkward come eight months, yes, They would have had to tell somebody. What if they remained unchanged? Imagine if the shepherds heard and saw the angels and their myriad and their songs and after they left, they go, oh, that's nice. 
yeah, he's in a manger, but we're going to just hang out here. Imagine if that happened. How drastically different the Christmas story would be. Imagine the wise men skipping out on their journey to come see Jesus. That's a little too far. I know he's going to come. He's going to be underneath a star, but it's not worth it. I, I know he's coming. That's good enough for us, right? Close the book. All right, good. Good, wise men. We're really smart. They were wise because they also acted on their beliefs, yes? And as ridiculous as it may sound, imagine if Jesus, knowing and believed he was the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, and he did nothing. He did nothing. Where would we be? But that's not what happened. God proved his love for us by sending his one and only son to be born in a manger, to die on a cross so that we might have life and life everlasting when we submit to him as our Lord and Savior and confess our sin before him. He did this so that we might have a faith that works and obeying God and bringing him glory for the good of those around us and also for the rest of our very souls. Let's prove it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in prayer. Um, It's a weighty text. It's a weighty passage. And yet we so, as people, we love extremes. We want all or nothing. And yet when we enter into the yoke of Christ, after we have bowed the knee to the cross of Christ, we hear you calling us to come and to learn from you. That our faith might be expressed in works. And truly believe not only about you, but in you and rely in you. And so, God, I echo the words of the song we sung this morning about your great comforter and helper you've sent us to do this very thing. It's not just warm fuzzies, but the person of the Holy Spirit as he empowers us to resurrection life. Holy Spirit, come abide within. May your joy be seen in all I do. Love enough to cover every sin in each thought and deed and attitude. Kindness to the greatest and the least. Gentleness that sows the path of peace. Turn my striving into works of grace. Breath of God. Show Christ in all I do. Amen.